We're in the midst here of our series, well, really, I guess, to the, near the end of our series on the gathering of the people of God. Uh, we've been going through all summer this, this picture, looking at pictures of the people of God when they're all together. You know, what is true when the people of God gather in the Old Testament and now we're into the New Testament? But what are these ideas and principles and just this picture of beauty that we really want to be captured by and have our imaginations held captive to and, and strive for more and more as a people when we gather together today? Well, if you have your Bible with you, open it up to Acts chapter 2. That's where we are today. Very famous passage from Scripture here in Acts. We're going to pick up the narrative in Acts 30, or in verse 37 of chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, we'll have it up on the screen as well. This is how the text reads. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It's a dramatic picture of the first church. Jesus has just left his disciples, if you know the biblical narrative of where this has come out of. Jesus has just ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he left his disciples. And he said, wait in the city, and power will come upon you. My spirit will come upon you, and you will be witnesses to me and to my kingdom. The spirit has just descended on those early Christians and they are speaking in all kinds of different languages. People are accusing them of being drunk because of the words that they are saying. But it's not drunkenness. It's the Spirit amongst them. And Peter gets up and he preaches the first recorded sermon we have on Christ. He tells them about Jesus with many words, right? The text was he exhorted them and showed them who Jesus was. And thousands give their lives to Christ. From around the world, at this time in Pentecost, this audience is an incredibly diverse one. Every Jew from the entire world is gathered together. So it's so many different languages and cultures and ethnicities, and people are there all in Jerusalem. Even if you weren't a Jew, you were there because of the trading and the money and the selling of things. So, I mean, everyone is there. Everyone is hearing the gospel and are giving their lives to Jesus, and they come together into the church. 
And we have the very first picture of a church here in Acts chapter 2. A church community that's going to start in Jerusalem and will exponentially spread throughout the entire world, which we are a part of. I mean, this is us. This is our beginnings, is what we just read thousands of years ago. And what's so amazing about that is really, you know, how did the church accomplish such a feat, right? How did the church grow in such a way? How did it become what it was? As Alan Hirsch points out, he's got this book, The Forgotten Ways, and it's a great book about the early church. But in this opening of that book, he, he rightly points out that in 100 AD, so some years after this, there are 25,000 Christians, 25,000, that's a good number, in 100 AD. By 310, there are 20 million Christians. What happened? How, how on earth could a community grow like that? Especially this community, this early church, because when you look at Christians and you look at the church described here in Acts and that we're going to see throughout the New Testament, it was illegal to gather and to worship Jesus, and they grew and were persecuted. At best, they were tolerated. That was the best they experienced, was toleration. At worst, they are being killed and persecuted because what they're doing is illegal. So an illegal group grows. They have no buildings Right? They own no buildings like we would imagine, like churches did. They don't even have the Bible as we have it today. They have a few copies of a few books, right? They have Colossians, they may have Ephesians, they may have a few others. But they, they don't even have the scriptures. They can't just expound or hand to people. They don't have denominations to fit various types and interests of the Spirit. Or more, I'm more of a Bible person. I'm more of a you know, social justice person. They don't have the denominational structures or institutions. They don't have professional clergy. They don't have seeker-sensitive services. They don't have youth groups or worship bands or seminaries or any of these things. And they actually made it, according to all the records that we have of that early church, they made it incredibly hard to join the church. You had to go through rituals. You had to go through initiations. It was not an easy process to get into the church. How did this community then grow to take over the known world in 200 years? What was it that made the church so attractively powerful? Right? There was something about this community of believers, right? And there still is, right? The church continues to grow. It can never be stamped out. What is it? about the early church? What is it about the church today? When the church is at its best, what is it about the church that is so great? What happened? Because something new happens at Pentecost. The people of God change forever. It's not just a continuation of Judaism, much to the chagrin of many of the Jews who become Christians. This isn't just Judaism with added-in people. It's something new. It's a new community of people, a people that the world has never seen before. No religion or philosophy has ever produced a community like this, a community of believers who are so racially, ethnically, and gender diverse. It's just never been seen. And right away, that's exactly what we see, is a community made up of men and women, Jews and Greeks, from all places, all tribes, all tongues, together, and a spirit among the people that was literally contagious. If you hung out long enough 
you got sick with whatever they were sick with. This drunkenness, what is with these people? There's something about this community. And we see it in this early picture that we get in Acts chapter 2. The fruit of a spirit-filled church. Right? If you look at that text, what we see to, in it is they have devotion. They are devoted. In everything, they show devotion. And this idea of devotion, some translations will call it, they gave themselves. Like they gave themselves to the apostles' teaching. They gave themselves to the meeting together. They gave themselves. And that's really what devotion is. They are giving themselves. This early church community is marked by a willing giving. They just wholeheartedly give themselves away to God, to his teaching, to his church. They're giving everything. They devote themselves. They give themselves to the teachings. They devote themselves to fellowship. They give themselves and devote themselves to meeting together regularly, not just in one place or at one time, but at multiple places and multiple times. They devote themselves. They gave themselves to prayer and to worship. They gave away their money and their possessions, their titles. They willingly give everything. They give of their time and their emotions. They give. They give everything away. And that was the early critique as well of the early Christian church. Right away, the Christian church has lots of people who don't like it and who write against it. And there's many Romans who wrote against the Christian church. And among the chief concerns with this Christian community was that they were too quick to give things away. They don't value things enough, was the critique of this church. They don't value social classes. They don't value money and possessions, right? Like, how can we live in a society with people who don't value money and property? How can we live with a society without, with people who don't value title and gender and all the and race differences. How can you live with people like that, right? Our whole systems are built around these things. If people don't value this, right, then they won't work as hard. They won't vote. They won't care about the government. They won't care about work. They won't care about the economy. They won't, no, this is terrible. We can't have a people who just freely give everything away. They have to value. They have to value their homes more. They have to value their money more. They have to value these things more. But this early church just gives everything away. They are devoted to each other and to God. And the results of it, right, we also see in the text, the results of their devotion to one another. This profound, spirit-filled devotion is awe and wonder. People come in contact with this community and they are awestruck, dumbfounded. What is going on with these people? What could have inspired these people to give up all of their things and help one another? What could inspire these people to meet regularly, even though under the, under the midst of persecution and threat, what is going on? And numbers are added daily to this young and early church. The church will become the driving force of good in the world. And this Jesus will tell his disciples this. You are the salt of the earth. You will be what is good in this world. You will preserve this world. You will bring good into the world. Everything that is good in this world, you will hold on to, and you will make even better. 
That's what he told them. And this is exactly what we see the early church doing and they will continue to do. This is the church. The spirit of this community within the church, it's unlike anything that has ever happened in human history. No other religion or philosophy has ever produced a people like this. I don't know if, you're, if you know that or not. I, I spent a lot of my life studying religion, so I, I love studying different religions. It only just confirms to me the gospel more and more. But Christianity is the only religion that's ever done this. Nothing like this had ever happened in human history up until this moment. And no other religion or philosophy has ever replicated what Christianity has replicated. Where you can have a people united around something that transcended race and gender, ethnicities, and all these things. No other religion has been able to make a jump across ethnic borders, across racial lines. No other one has done this, right? Every other religion in the world is still predominantly, mainly what its founder and originator was. Hinduism is predominantly in India, and it's by Indian. Buddhism is still predominantly Asian, Islam is predominantly Middle Eastern. Mormonism is predominantly, right, white Utah. <laughs> Christianity, right, has jumped ethnicities. It's jumped continents. The gospel goes forth. Someone from a different culture presents the gospel to someone. They accept it. They believe it. The Spirit fills them, and they gather together, and they don't take on the ethnicity of the people who gave them the gospel. It can jump. And it's done this time and time and time again from Jewish Christianity to Gentile Christianity in a heartbeat to then European Christianity to England and to America to Asia to Africa now is the real center of Christianity in the world. It's not us, but it's Africa today. It jumps. Nothing else has ever produced this. No other philosophy or idea has had this kind of power. What is it that is so unique? These central ideas of Christianity, these central ideas that we find within the church that are now so ingrained in our society, these ideas that like all life is valuable. That's Christianity. That's nowhere else. No other philosophy or religion has ever taught that, that all life has value. All people are equal. Doesn't matter gender, class, race, race. Christianity is the only only one that's ever preached or taught that idea. That we should love our enemies. That's only Jesus. No one else has ever taught that idea. These are revolutionary teachings. This is revolutionary ideas that Christ provides for us where you now have something completely unique and new on the world stage when we see this early church in Acts 2. What we see is we see the church and we see what we're called to be as a church. The church doing what it does, the church at its very best, right? Because the church at its very best, we see it throughout Scripture, what our calling is. If you've been in a house church for a while, most likely you've gone through the book of Ephesians. We know what the church is called to do. It's what we're seeing in Acts 2, and it's what we see around the world when the church is at its best, revealing the character and the work of God, the plan of God to this world, making Jesus beautiful and making his plan beautiful, giving freedom and hope. Every great movement in Western history that's brought life and freedom to people has been driven by the church, historically. 
It's always had Christians on that front end pushing those enterprises. If it's women's rights, abolition, like this has always been the church at its best. Is always out giving itself away, giving Christ and giving their lives. The church was meant to be a place of giving. The fruit of the Spirit within the community like this produces a community that devotes themselves, that devote themselves to Christ, that devote themselves to one another, that devotes themselves to the world, that devotes themselves to their enemies, that gives of themselves, that holds nothing back where there is a willingness and a joy in the giving of oneself to God and to each other. This is what the Spirit produces in us. A willingness to be known by others, to share our burdens and our concerns, to share our homes and our lives, to come together. This is what Paul will continually urge the church, right? Like when you come together, sing, share songs. There is an eagerness to give give to one another, to study, to give of our resources, to give of our emotional capital, right? to not hold back. But now, this isn't always what we experience, right? We know this as well. Many of us have seen the church at its best, have been recipients of the church at its best, if you've been in the church long enough, you've, you've received this giving, an outpouring of the Spirit, and people investing in your life, and loving you, and giving to you, and you have given and felt that too, and the Spirit that's at work that drives us to do this. We, we, we've felt those things, but we also can see and have experienced the church at its not-so-best, where the church today, especially in our culture, right, has become a place where we receive things, where we get things from church. We gather together on Sunday mornings, in the house churches, in various times to receive something. We gather to get teaching, to be taught by someone. We gather together to hear singing and hear worship on our behalf. We come together to share in an experience but it's still an experience geared towards us. We go to the church to be ministered to and to receive from the church. Rarely today, right, is the church thought of as a place that actually demands something of us, requires something of us. A community that actually needs something from us. A community that we are actually hurting by withholding. And Paul will say this in Ephesians, stop robbing your brothers. Give to the community. Rarely do we see this, or rarely do we even think of this with the Christian community. Giving to the church, whether it's time, money, gifts, energy, I mean just our presence, is almost always thought of as an optional idea. <laughs> within Christianity, and for good reason. I, mean, I can understand that trajectory of modern evangelicalism and of the church. 
But it's thought of as something that you grow into. If you mature and you become more and more of a real Christian, then you will give more of yourself and your time and your energy. You know, the, I don't, everybody doesn't have to give as long as there's this one core group of people who give financially to support the budget. Great. Then everything else is just gravy. You know, as long as a few people are giving all the time, we're good. We've got a core group that really is committed. Or to house church, right? You experience this with them like a meal, right? Oh, well, do I have to bring a side today? You know what? Someone else is going to bring enough. I don't have to. We think of most things as, as optional. Do I, have to, do I need to sing during church? Well, if I feel like it, if I know the song, I will. If I don't, I won't. It's optional. Do I come? Do I sit? What do I do? We think of coming to church or gathering together as a very optional experience in, in modern Christianity. We don't devote ourselves to it. But the church seems to be called to something greater. Right? As a people that gather together, right? and we see this trajectory through Scripture, we're called to something much, much greater than just passively gathering together on Sunday morning to receive a sermon and listen to some beautiful music together. It seems like we're called to be filled with the Spirit of God, to overflow with love, to become more and more devoted to God and to each other, to the world and to our enemies. It seems that the, call, the calling of the church is far greater than just gathering. But that when we gather, we should be filled with the Spirit of God. We should not be known as a church for what we have or what we protect. That would be even worse. Like we're a church that has great teaching. We're a church that has great music. That's not what the people of God should be known for. But the people of God should be known for what they give, for their devotion, for their pouring out of their lives, for their love for one another and for this world. This teaching, if we put this into practice, if we can imagine what this looks like, it's transformative, right? To be filled with a spirit like this, devotion and a giving of oneself away, what that would actually look like. It would require things from us that we probably aren't quite willing to do. It would require us to be involved in each other's lives in ways in which most of us are not comfortable doing. It would require us meeting more and in different contexts as a church body, as a people of God. Right? This, this body in Acts doesn't just get together one day a week or even two days a week, but they are devoted to one another. They give their lives to one another. Whew. That would look very different. There'd be a diversity in our meetings, a diversity in our experiences. There'd be a valuing of people, right? a valuing of people, a tolerance of people, of being willing to be with people, have people be with us who can give us nothing back in return. Right? You know this. You've been in community in some ways. If it's family, neighborhood, in the church, there are people who give you nothing but only seem to take from you. We would value them. The church would be a place that values people, not just the people who are strong, not just the people who have things to give themselves, but those who are powerless and who are weak, those who are annoying, those who we don't enjoy their company, 
who am I to not give of my time and my energy to somebody who cannot give back to me? Well, that's what Christ does to me. We would value people. We would value people, all people, all genders, all ethnicity. We would value people. We would have an honesty within the church. Right? There would be a willingness to be open and transparent and honesty with one another. There wouldn't be no hiding of sin. This is what Paul continually tells the church. Right? Like, let, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Be filled with the Spirit. Confess to one another. There'd be open sharing. We wouldn't hide ourselves from other people. Worried about what they will think of us. Worried about how they will judge us. Worried if they will reciprocate. There's an honesty. And there would be a giving of time. Right? An emotional capital. If we really gave ourselves away. Right? As a church... This is an aspect in which I know I, I'm not strong. Right? I can give of myself in some ways, but then in other ways, I do not want to give, especially emotionally. Right? I will give you my time. I will show up for something. I will meet with you. I can pray with you, but I don't really want to give you my emotional <laughs> energy. I don't want to think about you all the time. I want to be freed from my meeting I just had. I don't want to think about you all week. I don't want to remember you. <laughs> I know I have to. It sounds terrible, right? I know I have to, right? but in my heart, I don't want to. But Christ calls us to know, even if I don't physically see you, I need to bear with you. I need to bear your burdens in your life. I, I want to give of my heart and my life to one another. I don't want to hold back myself from you and just give you my time, but not give you my emotional energy and my prayers. There would be a free and open, joyful giving of resources. <laughs> it would be a competition of giving. Right? When there is a need that arises, the response right, is, who can give first? Right? How much can I give? Not questions about, well, how much has already been raised? No, I'm eager to get, I want to get in quickly on this. I don't want to miss out on the chance to serve or to give to others and to their needs, right? There's a joy that comes with giving and, getting, and giving needs. And some of you have really actually experienced that joy, right, that comes from meeting people's needs, from giving. Even when you don't know that you had enough to give to meet the need, you just give, you just write that check, you just show, oh, there, that is a powerful experience, right? Why do we rob others of it and rob ourselves of this experience of giving, Right? A race to give. And there would be evangelism. Right? True and honest evangelism with a spirit-filled community like this. Not this picture of like, we orchestrate a service that's designed in such a way to be sensitive and we can invite people in. No. Our lives are overflowing with love and we give ourselves to unbelievers. We have people in our lives that we invest in and we care about and they feel, they feel cared about by us and they see us caring for one another and loving one another that awe comes over them. And they say, wow, what you do is exactly how I want to live. Right? And you see this. You do see skeptics often become attracted to the picture of the church, if not the church itself, or the ideas of Christianity but not knowing if they really want to believe in Jesus or commit themselves to him. This should be what happens. We should be attracting skeptics in, 
not because of how great we are or our teaching is so good, but because of our life, because of this love and devotion, this community, this spirit amongst us that they want to be a part of. When we gather together, it would look different. There would be a diversity amongst us. There would be joy when we gather. There would be giving, a free giving. And there would be this consecration of ourselves, this idea of setting ourselves apart and being obedient to God's word. Right? There would be a faithfulness that comes from us, a yearning not to just receive when we get together on Sundays or in house church, but a yearning to go do a yearning to be obedient to something, to be called to something, to give of our lives and to give to something. This is what it would look like. So the question is, right, how do we get to this place? Because <laughs> we've experienced this at times. Absolutely, I think of my own house church experiences. Oh, yes, I have experienced this kind of spirit-filled community. Many of you have experienced this, but it's not always there. It's not always sustaining. How do we grow in this? How are we strengthened as this as a church? How do we experience this love and this unity? What's holding us back from this life? We have to probably ask ourselves some questions, right, of where are we actually holding ourselves back? Where don't we give of ourselves? Who, who or where is it hard to give of yourself to? Right? We can probably identify people in our life that we know it's hard to give ourselves to them. It's hard to be honest with them. It's hard to love them. It's hard to open our doors to them, have one more meeting with them, those types of things. Why is it so hard? Because we're all devoted to something. We're all freely giving ourselves to something. We need to identify what is it that you're devoted to? What's taking, what's occupying this place in your heart? And then we have to let the image of God who gives himself away for us melt our hearts. We have to be moved. We have to be moved by the image of Christ who comes into this world. Right? The incarnation is such a beautiful, beautiful picture of a God who leaves everything, gives up everything, leaves his home, lays aside his glory and enters into this world taking on the life of a servant, giving himself again and again and again for those who don't reciprocate at all his love, who don't deserve his love. In fact, who will kill him for his love and of his giving away. Of whom I am the chief. I don't reciprocate his love. Yet he died in my place. He died in your place. He secured for us a place in his kingdom, in his home. He gave himself for us. Look at Christ right, until your heart is moved. That can be the only true way to do this. Because what would change if we focused on Christ? If I see him more and more, if we gather together to see Jesus, if that's why we come, to have our hearts moved by the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf, things begin to change in us. If you already believe in Christ, if you would call yourself a believer in Jesus, by focusing on Christ, by seeing him, by renewing our minds in Jesus more and more, in the gospel more and more and more, seeing him for who he is and what he has done on our behalf, you will find a renewed spirit and joy. You know this to be true. 
<laughs> You've experienced this. We are a forgetful people. We are quick to move away. But when we remind ourselves, when we look at Jesus on that cross, right, for us, for me, coming into this world, living the life that he lived for me on my behalf, my spirit is moved. My heart is broken. We experience power and peace, and we start to give again. But out of an excess of love, instead of from our dwindling capacity, because right, we can guilt each other into giving more, being more and more devoted, doing more, giving more money, spending more time. But if you're tapping into yourself to do that, it will be short-lived and it will produce not the fruit that you hope it will produce. If you don't believe in Jesus, but you find these teachings of Jesus appealing, if you don't believe in Christ, but you find the church appealing, you find this idea of a community that would give itself freely to others and to the poor and to the oppressed to their, and loving their enemies. If you find those ideas appealing, I invite you to start being consistent in your life and start believing in the source of those ideas. Look to Jesus. Because it's inconsistent to just look at the results of Jesus or Jesus' teachings without believing in the man who started it. You will find that your whole life begins to align more and more with the life that you were hoping to live all along when you find the source, when you find truth. So if you don't believe in Jesus, but you really love the teachings of Jesus, I'd encourage you to find the truth. And you'll find a love, a different love than the world offers, a love that truly satisfies and empowers. Our prayer for both of us, right, and our prayer as a church for everybody, right, is that we will be filled with this Spirit. When we look at the Spirit of the early church, we want the Spirit of God to fill us. We want to be overflowing with that love. We want to be strengthened in our innermost beings, in our heart, to know the love of God so that we are set free to give ourselves to God. Because we have been set free by Christ, but we've been set free for the law. We've been set free to love God and to love others as ourselves. Not to love ourselves, but to love others as ourselves. Christ died for us so that we could now freely give ourselves away to him and to others and experience greater and greater peace and joy and love. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your great mercy. We thank you for your great love. We thank you that you freely gave yourself for us. We thank you, Lord, for your character, that you are a God who gives, not a God who requires, but a God who, who came into this world to us to save us, to bring us into your family, to give us new names and new lives, new hopes. Lord, your love and your grace is so immeasurable and it's so great and immeasurable that it demands my life and my soul. Lord, we recognize that we cannot live unchanged lives. That if you really are who you say you are and that you have done the things for us that you continually show us that you have done, we can't live 
normal. Lord, strengthen us as a church to know how great your love is for us. Lord, melt our hearts and then reform them into your image. Lord, strengthen us to love each other, to be devoted to one another. Ultimately, Lord, to be devoted to you, not because we have to, but because we get to. Help us, Lord, to love this world, to love our enemies, to give away our lives and our resources, to be a community of believers that gives and that is devoted. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy, knowing that we will never do this perfectly. And our success doesn't rest on us or how much we give or how often we meet together or what we actually do. Lord, we know that our security and our hope is in you and we can take baby steps and we know that we will fail and we know that you are right there always drawing us back from the edges, from the extremes, from the hopelessness on both sides of religion and irreligion, Lord. Continually remind us of who we are in you. Continually remind us of the hope that we have in you. Lord, teach us what it looks like to love the way that you loved. In your son's name we pray. Amen.